Coming at you from historic New Brunswick, New Jersey, this is the Matt Ward History Experience. My name's Matt Ward, and I'll be your tour guide today. This month's episode of the Matt Ward History Experience features The Weigh-In, a segment that was recorded on location at Pelts Boxing Promotions in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The Matt Ward History Experience is brought to you by One Stone Recording and Mastering in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Check out One Stone Recording and Mastering for all of your mixing and mastering needs. One Stone Recording and Mastering is online at onestonerecording.com. We're going to start off the fourth episode of the Matt Ward History Experience with the weigh-in segment from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. This month's interview is with boxing promoter and International Boxing Hall of Fame inductee, Jay Russell Peltz. During this interview, we were able to discuss Mr. Peltz's career as a boxing promoter and boxing history. Without further delay, here it is, the weigh-in. Please introduce yourself to my listeners. I'm Jay Russell Peltz, boxing promoter from Philadelphia. At what age did you become interested in the sport of boxing? Twelve. What got you interested in the sport of boxing? I started watching fights on TV with my dad and, um, in 1959. And <clears throat> I bought a book called The uh, Picture History of Boxing by Nat Fleischer. He was the writer and Sam Andre was the photographer. It was what we would call today a coffee table book. And it was the history of boxing division by division, eight divisions back then. And I, uh, it was like an epiphany. That's like I memorized the book front and back and upside down and backwards in the index. And I read every story and every looked at every picture. And I suddenly thought that I knew more about boxing than any man who ever lived. <laughs> and I was 12. I actually, I bought it for my 13th birthday. What was the first professional boxing match that you remember watching in person or on television? On television, I think it was uh, Cleveland Williams against Curly Lee, a heavy, heavyweight fight. And Cleveland Williams knocked Curly Lee out in the 10th round. I think he actually lifted him off his feet. That was the first fight. I believe it was that might have been the first fight I ever saw on television. The first fight I ever saw in person was a year later when I finally bugged my dad to take me to the fights. It was December 4th, 1960 at Convention Hall in Philly. Len Matthews, who was the number one lightweight contender in the world from Philly, fought Doug Valiant from Cuba in the main event, then got beat. Beat bad was the beginning of the end of his career, but... Um, you know, I was raised in the, on the main line in Philly, so for most of my life, the only black people I ever knew were the, the uh, women who came to clean our house, or there was a mechanic who worked for my dad in the plumbing business. He was his number one mechanic, Jimmy Williams, and he was black, but... <clears throat> Let's see, December 1960, I was still in junior high, so I was in ninth grade. And when I walked into convention hall that night, of course, in those days, if you sat ringside, you wore a tie and jacket. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and um, there was about 5,000 people there. And, you know, you see the ring in the center and you see, 
you know, all the, I mean, it, I mean, the crowd was probably 60, 40 white, but still, I'd never been around so many black people in my life. And uh, I said, <laughs> I said, this is for me. <laughs> and we sat on the second row. And uh, actually, there was an older black man sitting in our seats when we got there, having a good time. And the usher moved him and we sat there. And, you know, <clears throat> I remember everything about the show. Everything. Growing up, who was your favorite fighter or fighters? Harold Johnson was my favorite fighter. He, uh, I didn't know it at the time, or I didn't pay attention to it at the time, but his manager, Pat Oliveri, actually lived across the street from us in Balakinwood, maybe 15 yards from my house, but I never made an effort to see him. But, you know, you would buy the Ring magazine and... and their rankings were the only rankings that counted, and every month when the rankings came out, they would always have a picture in the center of an outstanding contender, not a champion. It seemed like it was always Harold Johnson, <laughs> and he had like the perfect name. He had like no nickname. All the letters were above the line, like there was no Y, no G, oh. you know what I mean? So mm -hmm. Harold Johnson and... He had a beautiful body, and he had had a tough luck career. And um, I remember the day he won the Piece of the Light heavyweight title. In those days, you had to wait for the newspaper to come in the morning, the Inquirer. And this was February of 61. And when the Inquirer was delivered to the house that day, and I opened up, I mean, the whole sports page where the fight was in Miami, and of him knocking out Jesse Beaudry to win the title, it was like three or four giant pictures. It was the lead story. It was like what the Eagles would get today. Right. And then two months later, uh, my dad took me to see him defend his title against Von Clay at the arena, and we sat on the first row. And that was the first time I saw him fight in person. And he won that fight by second-round knockout, and uh, I just loved him. Just loved him. I've got his robe. This is his belt, oh. his Ring Magazine belt. I've got, you know, I've got his trophies, everything. This is a picture of him getting the belt. And we became, actually, when I was uh, going to start promoting fights, he was going to be on my first show in 69. But that's when I really met him. And, uh... Then later, in 1989, when I had a radio show, I met him and we became friendly. And we were friendly from 89 until he died, you know. I wound up, wound up paying some of his bills, because Harold had no money. And actually, his belt was all busted up and it was laying in a shoebox in his house. And I had him on my radio show and I asked him, you know, what he had of his collection, and he brought me this shoebox with his belt in it. And uh, he, his truck was in 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 uh, in a repair shop, and he couldn't afford to get it out. He needed five hundred dollars to get it out, so he sold me his belt for five hundred dollars, and I had it restored and framed. And. Uh, his son, come, his son, Chuck, who was an amateur boxer who I wrote about when I was a sports writer, mm -hmm. he calls me about once a year, wants to know if I'm going to give him the belt. <laughs> I said, no, the belt's in the family, Chuck. It's going to stay here. 
Do you have an all-time favorite professional bout? Yeah, uh, favorite bout, favorite bout, favorite highlight would be Benny Briscoe knocking out Tony Mundine in Paris in February 1974. That was probably, um, that was like the greatest night ever because Mundine was the toast of Paris and he had knocked out Max Cohen there and he beat Emil Griffith there in Paris and Philly at the time were the two hotbeds for middleweights. Mm -hmm. And uh, we got the offer to go. Monday could have named his price to fight Monzone at the time. And um, we got an offer to fight him. And uh, I guess that was the first time I ever went to Europe. I remember because I, I threw up in the plane going <laughs> over. I'd eaten some kind of hot turkey sandwich at the airport and it didn't agree with me. And the plane was rocky and like, the whole time, not the whole time, the last hour of the trip, I'm holding the vomit bag. Right. And just as we were landing, I couldn't hold it anymore. <laughs> I threw up all over myself. <laughs> and uh, I said to the stewardess, I said, I think I had an accident here. And she looked at me and turned and walked away. But anyway, we uh, we were in Paris. And um, I remember the night of the fight, I ran into, in the lobby, I ran into Reg Guttrich, who was like the Howard Cosell of Europe. Mm-hmm. He was the leading broadcaster writer of boxing in Europe. He was based in England. Well, the fight was so big, every, everybody from Europe was at the fight. Reuters, the Associated Press, UPI, everybody. And as we were getting ready to leave the lobby and go into the van, I recognized him from getting boxing news, so we introduced each other. He says, he says to me, I don't understand it. He said, Mundine is so popular. He could name his price to fight Monzone. Why would he tune up with Benny Briscoe? And I, uh, I looked at him. I said, I don't know. <laughs> so we get to the arena, and this is the first time I learned about walkout bouts and how they schedule. This was '74, so I'd been promoting less than five years. The opening battle on the show was a 15-rounder for the European Junior Welterweight title. And we were the second fight on the show. And we brought Saad Muhammad with us, Matthew Franklin, who was in a four-rounder. And we brought Lil Abner with us, who was a 10-round junior middleweight. But we were the main event, but we were the second fight of the night. So when it was time for them to go to the ring, I had my eight millimeter camera and I went up to the top row of the Palais de Sport. I think it held about 4,500 and it was sold out but I found the seat up there and I filmed the fight from up there and you can see on the film when Briscoe starts to take over in the fifth round people are jumping up in front of me and the camera starts to shake because I'm excited right and then uh, when Benny Benny always wore the star of David the Jewish star on his trunks Mm -hmm. and when he got to the ring that night I I learned this later, I was sitting too far away. There was about six Israeli Jews sitting ringside. And they they flashed their Israeli passports. They said, Benny, we're Jewish too, we're Jewish too. (laughs) So after he knocks Mundine out, I mean, my film was okay. Later I got professional films of it. You can see the Israeli Jews jumping into the ring and lifting Benny up, and one of them makes Benny lean down and kiss him on the cheek. 
And when we went back to the dressing room, the dressing room was so small. It was like, uh, it was the size of the kitchen here with like, it was, Lil Abner was working outside, Muhammad was loosening up, and all the press was in there. And I jumped on top of a file cabinet and I was filming the dressing room scene. Of course, it, it's, in, it's silent. And there's a picture of Benny putting on his white T-shirt without taking a shower, which is what he always did. I'm mm -hmm. yelling to him, nice shower, Ben. And you can see him on the film smiling. And then my brother-in-law, who was his manager, I gave him the uh, camera and I went over. I'm wearing a three-piece polyester plaid suit with one of those big bow ties. And I look like Gene Shalit, the... Uh, film critic and the bow tie is so big you think I'm going to squeeze it and water's going to come out of it <laughs> and I kiss Benny on, on the head and I've got this grin on me that you just couldn't break you know it was such a grin you'd think my, my cheeks were going to break and uh, that was the greatest night ever better than the Hall of Fame induction better than any world title fight there was nothing like that that was like winning the world title mm -hmm. sounds amazing yeah. In what year did you become a boxing promoter? 1969. September what, 30th, 1969. What inspired you to become a boxing promoter? Well, I was working, uh, you know, I went to school for journalism at Temple. And I, um, at the end of my, um, I mean, the school had a daily paper. I was a sports editor as a sophomore, but I wanted to be a boxing writer. And I got a job during my junior year working Saturday nights at the Evening Bulletin, which was, uh, it's hard to believe it's not around. It was the oldest afternoon paper in the country. And um, I worked there, I started working there Saturday nights because in those days, the Bulletin would publish like six editions on a Saturday, like Phillies lead Milwaukee 5-3 after six innings. You mm -hmm. would buy that because that's how you kept up with everything. So people would call in with updates and you do rewrites and edit copy and headlines. And then that summer, uh, the Bulletin hired me full time to work the lobster shift, which was midnight to eight, editing copy and doing rewrites and headlines and uh, occasional stories, maybe one or two. And then um, around August or the end of August I'm getting ready to I wanted to be the boxing writer mm -hmm. that was my goal in life and um, the end of August or beginning of September I'm getting ready to leave one day and Jackie Wilson the uh, sports editor comes in and he calls me over he says listen Russell you're getting ready for your senior year at Temple uh, why don't you go back to school? We'll keep you on Saturday nights, and when you graduate in June, we'll we'll. Am I talking too long? No, no, it's fine. Uh, we'll um, we'll hire you again. <laughs> I said, you know, I, I thought I someone had shot me. I said, I said, Mr. Wilson, I will work for nothing if you keep me on during my senior year. So. Uh, he smiled. He said, forget it. Forget I said anything. You'll stay working here and we'll pay you. Because I loved what I was doing. I mean, 
we were so good. We used to laugh at the Inquirer and Daily News, the mistakes they would have. I mean, if, if we put in the paper that Carl Yastrzemski was batting 285 mm -hmm. and he was really batting 288, there was hell to pay. I mean, we were, and you didn't ha even have to get chewed out by the desk boss. You, you felt terrible yourself. I came in there on, on New Year's Eve because we, we worked every night. And I said to my boss, Herm Rogel, I said, Herm, I'm drunk. <laughs> so he took someone's story to edit and he threw it at me and he said, sober up on that. <laughs> but we, you know, there was a quarterback from Penn named Bernie Zabrenji, Z-B-R-Z-E-Z-N-J. We knew all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Carl Yastrzemski, Y-A-S-T-R-Z-E-M-S-K-I. And we, you know, we were, we, he called us... T G M S S T W H E K. That's what Herm called us, the greatest morning sports staff the world had ever known. <laughs> but Jack Freed was, um, oh, we didn't get along. Oh, he was such a redneck. This is 1969, and he's calling him Cassius Clay in the stories. Oh, wow. So I get the story at midnight, and I change the whole story to Muhammad Ali. Right. He comes in at like 8 o'clock in the morning, or when the first edition was out, before I left, and he sees what I did, and he started screaming at me. He said, he hasn't officially changed his name. You know, you're out of line. He went, ran down to the composing room, and the sheets were made on lead, linotype uh, presses, and he started pulling them out like this and changing them. And, and screaming. I mean, two years later, he had a 13 to 2 Frazier over Ali in their first fight. Come on. Frazier won, but it wasn't any 13 to 2. Mm -hmm. He was just a redneck bigot. And, uh, you know, he got an extension on his retirement. Mandatory retirement was 65, and guys at the Bullet used to say, Russell's dancing on Jack Freed's grave. You know, <laughs> that I was hoping. There was one night when we, at like two in the morning, we got we got a call that one of the writers had been seriously injured in a crash, and we didn't know if it was Jack Fried or Ed Broomhead who was the uh, racing writer. Oh. And people, this started making cracks like pelts hopes it's free. <laughs> but when I saw that he was going to keep getting extensions on his retirement, I uh, I got antsy. I covered a couple fights when he was on vacation, and uh, so I decided I'd, I'd just, you know, I had money saved up because you got paid in college for being an editor at the paper, and then I was working full-time at the Bulletin and, and living at home, so I was able to save $5,000. And I had met some people because I'd written some stories, and I'd been studying all the old stories, so I took a shot. And, uh, you know, it was a downtime in Philly, and people were hungry for fights. And there were a lot of good fighters. It was a post-Olympic year, 69, and just a lot of good young fighters. What was the first fight that you promoted? Benny Briscoe in a rematch with Tito Marshall at the Blue Horizon. Marshall had, had beaten Benny about uh, four years earlier on a disputed decision, and... Um, I was able to make the fight because I was friendly with Benny's people because they were involved in amateur boxing and I had written a couple stories about amateur boxing. So 
Benny fought for me for $1,000 against 25% of the gate. And Tito Marshall got 600 against 15% of the gate. And we sold out. And um, I got a lot of publicity because I had become friendly with Tom Cushman, who was the boxing writer from the Daily News, because I had met him in college because we were both covering Temple's basketball team at the time. So we met in Oklahoma City one Christmas when I was out there with the team covering them in a tournament. And he was actually flying east from Denver to start working at the Daily News. And they said, why don't you stop off in Oklahoma City on your way here? and cover Temple. So that's when we met and got friendly because without his help, I would have never made it because Freed wasn't going to write anything about me if he could help it because he didn't like me. Mm -hmm. And the guy at the Inquirer was on the payroll from Herman Taylor because in those days, boxing writers took money to... Uh, you need to get that? No, no. Took money to, you know, like... Some of the greatest writers of all time, I found out later in life, took money. So they weren't, I wasn't paying anybody. And Cushman told me, he knew that the other writers took money. And he told me that you've taken money. Uh, don't ever call me again. But he wrote the whole thing. I was 22 years old. And, you know, I got a lot of publicity out of the fact that I was 22, especially at a time when there was nobody young in boxing. I mean, today there's a lot of young people, but back in those days, they were all, all, there was nobody even in their 30s, or even, you know, it was just an old person's sport, so. And then my father, he bought 100 ringside tickets to give out to his friends in, in the, uh, in business, and, uh, you know, we sold out. I made 1,500 bucks. I was making 7500 a year at the Bulletin, and I ran 15 shows in eight months, and I made the same 7500 at the end, but I was having more fun. And that's how it started. You are closely associated with the legendary Blue Horizon in Philadelphia. What drew you to want to promote fights at the Blue Horizon? Well, it was the only affordable place at the time. I couldn't afford, first of all, I was starting out. The arena was too big for me. And uh, the Spectrum was out of the question. The Spectrum was only two years old when I started. And uh, the Blue Horizon, I think my rent was $300. And I'd gone in there while I was at the Bulletin to meet Jimmy Toppy, who had been a manager promoter in the 40s and 50s with his dad, who actually owned the arena at one point. And I picked his brain for months, and uh, it was basically because it was the only place I could afford. That's why I picked the Blue Horizon. Can you please tell us what the atmosphere of the Blue Horizon was like during a big fight? It was the best small club in the world. You know, small club defined as, I guess, any place seating... I guess 2,500 or less people um, with, the, with the balcony hanging over the ring, uh, just the proximity of all the fans were to the fighters, uh, almost like a small version of the Roman Coliseum oh. with the same kind of attitude. Um, as, as the, uh, it, was just a, it was just a wonderful place and once, and it was good, but it, it was tough. It was tough going. But um, once we got a TV contract with USA in, uh, 
1986 and then 87 full-time and people around the country and people in the city saw what it was like because a lot of people oh, North Philly I don't want to go there it's a bad neighborhood mm -hmm. that's when it really took off and uh, that's when it became legendary and um, I never thought it would get to the point where we could sell out no matter who was fighting in the main event even if even if the fighters weren't from Philly because they knew that they were going to see good fights. So it was just, there, there was no better place that I've ever been to that was, you know, more intimate and, and easier to see a fight at than there. What is your current favorite venue to promote fights at in the Philadelphia area? There is none. None? I mean, we promoted the arena, but because it's the only small venue, the 2300 arena, but... It's off the beaten path. There's no public transportation. It doesn't have a balcony yet, so it's just never. And you know, twenty three hundred arena. It does not have that zing that the Blue Horizon. I mean, the Blue Horizon. You know, when when I first started, I was going to, <laughs> I, I was going to get a building and call it the Green Octopus. <laughs> and my wife, my first wife actually knitted me a green a green octopus and she said why are you <laughs> why are you going to call it the green octopus and i said well i'm going to call it because i you know blue horizon green octopus i thought it was a cool name the electric factory was just starting out in those days oh, right. with concerts so i said it's going to be green because we're going to make money mm -hmm. and i said it's going to be the octopus because we're going to strangle all the competition <laughs> 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 I'm sorry I ever threw it out. Yeah. I wish I still had that thing. It's a cool name. <laughs> Sounds more like a like a rock concert venue, the Green Octopus. It does, it does. <laughs> who are some of the fighters that you currently promote? Well, I guess the guy who just made the biggest hit would be Jason Sosa, the junior lightweight that just fought a draw with uh, Nicholas Walters. Um... The heavyweight Amir Mansoor, who's fighting next week in Los Angeles on Fox. Uh, DiCarlo Perez, a middleweight, who's fighting Rob Brandt next week in Tucson on Showbox. Uh, we just got involved with the new Ray Robinson, and unfortunately he just got injured and had to pull out of a fight in Montreal in a few weeks. So those are the, uh, I think those are the top guys that I have right now. In 2004, you were inducted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame. Can you please tell my listeners what this experience was like for you? It was... Um, you know, I'd gone, I'd, I'd had, I had gone to the Hall of Fame every year as a fan. In fact, in all the years the Hall of Fame has been there, I've only missed two. Two years, but that weekend, like we went up on Thursday... You're like a rock star. Mm -hmm. um, I can't imagine how many autographs I signed. First of all, you're on the cover of the program, and that's a collector's item. So all the fans want everyone who's on the cover to sign it. So I, I signed hundreds, hundreds of autographs up there. I still sign autographs when I go, but you're talking maybe a half dozen. But back then... You sign them, and I've always had a table at the memorabilia show. And uh, while the other inductees are doing 
whatever they're supposed to do that day, so I signed more at my table. It was just, uh, it's just an incredible experience, just unreal. Russell, you were well known for your extensive knowledge of boxing history. Do you have any boxing history books that you would like to recommend that my listeners read to learn more about the history of the sport? Um, my favorite book has always been In This Corner by Peter Heller. It's interviews with about 40, 45, I guess they're all world champions, starting with Gunboat Smith, a heavyweight at the turn of the century, and in the extended editions goes up through Alexis Arguello, but it, it's, it's their career in their words. In other words, each chapter starts off with a little bio of who the fighter is, and the rest of each chapter is just each guy, his words, from first word to last word. Different incidents in his career, and I think that's always been my most favorite, my favorite book. Uh, Jim Norris and the Decline of Boxing by Barney Nagler. Anybody in the business should read that book because it's like, it's like a primer for, um, I guess, everything that's wrong in boxing. <laughs> and there was another one written by Jim Brady. Oh, I forget the name of it. It's also about the underbelly of boxing. I can't remember. Um, the exact name of the book, but uh, those, for anybody who, um, those are, I'm sure there's others, but uh, there's nothing like Peter Heller's book. Peter Heller and Jim Norris and the Decline of Boxing should be read by everybody. And, and uh, the Brady book, I just can't remember. Do you have any plans to write a book or do a documentary on your career? No. I mean, only because it's so tough to uh, to write. A, it's so much work to write a book, and, and boxing books are a tough sell. And while other people in Philly keep asking me about it, I don't know what kind of appeal there would be nationwide to read to read a book about me. I mean, there's no book about Bob Arum. There is a book about Don King. Um, you know, it's a lot of work to write a book. It's, you know, to write it well. And, and I don't know that I have the discipline to do that. The next few questions come from Facebook and Twitter. In your opinion, who is the greatest pound for pound fighter in boxing history? Oh, come on. It's Sugar Ray <laughs> Roberts. It's not even, I mean, you know, who's the greatest? It's not Floyd Mayweather. Right. Okay. Is Floyd Mayweather in the top 100 fighters of all time? Probably. He's probably in the top 100. But you got Sugar Ray Robinson, and in no particular order after him, you got Henry Armstrong, you got Willie Pep, you got Muhammad Ali, you got Joe Lewis. I mean, Harry Greb, you can't, I mean, you can't compare these guys fought all over the world. Mm -hmm. They didn't just fight at the MGM, and they fought I mean, did they fight easy guys? Yeah, but when you're fighting seven, eight, ten times a year, you're allowed to fight some easy guys. But if you're going to fight them, do what they did. Fight them in their backyards. Mm -hmm. You know, Mayweather should have gone to England to fight Amir Khan. It would have been a monster fight in England. Agreed. Monster. They'd have had 100,000 people at the fight. But 
a guy you never you never hear about this guy when they're talking about the great welterweight champions, Emil Griffith. He fought everybody, and he fought them in their backyards. I, you, there's really you can't compare it. It's just people who claim that Floyd Mayweather is the greatest fighter ever have no frame of reference. They really don't. There, there's. Could Floyd Mayweather be Kid Gavilan? I mean, come on, I, I don't know. It's Sugar Ray Robbins. You know, to me, when you're in the top 10, doesn't matter whether you're number one or number 10, you're in the top 10. I mean, how, how much better does it get? I mean, I'm sure there's other guys that I've left out of, of the, uh, of that, you know, Sam Langford, guys like that. It's just, it's mind-boggling, the great fighters that have come along in boxing who have had hundreds of fights. Ike Williams. Just, just mind-boggling. Stanley Ketchell, Mickey Walker. I mean, guys, guys that didn't have to go around saying, I'm the greatest ever. Right. They never said stuff like <laughs> Other than Ali. Mm -hmm. But Ali was like a joke. You know, Ali ushered in the, tr the era of the trash talk. But he was funny about it. He wasn't nasty about it. Mm -hmm. Who do you believe is the greatest fighter from Philadelphia of all time? Probably, um, probably Tommy Locker in the light heavyweight in the 20s. Um, the only thing is, but it wasn't his fault, he never fought a black man. But very few fighters did back then. But, you know, he had over, I guess he had close to 200 fights, and he fought everybody. He beat three heavyweight champions, Braddock Bear and... Uh, Braddock Baron Sharkey, and he held the, and he never lost the light heavyweight title. He relinquished it to move up in weight. So I'm looking at that because that's a montage of great Philly fighters. Right. So I would have to say that, I mean, Frazier was a great fighter, but again, it's hard to compare a guy with. 50 fights, if Frazier had 50, I'm not sure he even had that many, against a guy that had like 200 fights. Um, and Frazier was never, Lagerman was never dominated by anybody like Frazier was dominated by George Foreman. I mean, Lagerman was, in his time, the best light heavyweight around. So I would have to say it was Lagerman. I'd have to say that. There's actually, um, speaking of Lagrin, there's actually a um, marker in his old neighborhood, South Philly. Yeah, I was at the dedication. Yes, that's cool. That's you... him to the right of Frazier as you're looking at it. Oh, He's okay. On the right. And wow. next to him is George Benton and then Harold Johnson. Oh, okay. That's a great picture. Mm hmm. Do you believe that the 2015 Manny Pacquiao versus Floyd Mayweather fight was good for the sport of boxing? No, it was the worst thing that's ever, not that ever, it's the worst thing that's happened to it probably in this century because it happened too late, it was overhyped, and it was, a, it was dreadful. And you had a chance to win over 
hundreds of thousands of new fans, people who didn't know anything about boxing but had heard about this fight and they watched it and it was dreadful. So it's the old, you know, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. Not only that, it, it, it killed the business because in the couple of pay-per-view fights since then, a lot of the establishments, the bars that got hosed on that, that mm -hmm. paid big money, they don't want it. They don't want to buy anymore. Right. That's why the Canelo-Cotto fight, which should have been a bonanza in the bars, took such a hit because they, they all got skittish. And uh, it, was, it, was, it, was, oh, it was terrible. I mean, yeah, it broke records, but I mean, come on. I mean, I know the feeling when you, when you promote a fight like we did last year between Joey DeWaco and Amir Mansoor, and it was such, and it was a week later, and I'm saying to myself, boy, all those people that spent all that money on Pacquiao, now they're going to see a real fight on ESPN, and it turned out to be a dud. It turned out to be a dud fight. So I know, I know the feeling. So, but... <laughs> You know, it was a handful of people who saw that fight as opposed to the people that saw Mayweather Pacquiao. If Mayweather Pacquiao had been like Dempsey Furpo, mm -hmm. I mean, we would have won fans by, by the bucket load. But it wasn't. And it wasn't. And people had no right to expect that it, that it would be, a, well, maybe if Pacquiao, I mean, years ago, I don't know, I've never been high on Pacquiao. I never thought he could beat Floyd Mayweather. So, I, I, I don't know, I, you know, when have we ever seen, the last time I think Floyd Mayweather was in an exciting fight was probably the De La Hoya fight. Right, right. Because De La Hoya made him, you know, press them. But before that, you might have to go all the way back to Diego Corrales. I mm -hmm. don't know. What is your favorite boxing film? Body and Soul with John Garfield and Lily Palmer, the original one. I cry. <laughs> I cry at the end every time. In fact, when I go back to Florida in two weeks, I'm going to watch it again because I have it. Uh -oh. There's nothing. The, the second best one, well, I don't know. I like City for Conquest with Cagney and Ann Sheridan and the champion with Kirk Douglas. But the one that Nigel Collins likes the most, and depending on what you're looking for in the movie, would be the setup with Robert Ryan and, and uh, Audrey Trotter. Um, for you know, film critics, but those are those are the top four. I mean, Rocky one was a, was a great movie, but it doesn't compare. And and Raging Bull, because I remember it, because I I was friendly with Mike Rossman, because he fought for me, and he was just like Lamada, mm -hmm. and he was nasty, and and I remember I remember watching Raging Bull in the movie. I said, you know. You're such a jerk off, you know, because <laughs> he was doing such a good job. Um, Robert De Niro was of playing Lamont. I said, "What's wrong with you?" Yeah, you know, to act like this. And I thought of Mike Rossman, but it was great action. But I'm a fan of the old black and whites, so there's nothing like Body and Soul. Nothing. Are there any current Philadelphia fighters that you believe fight fans should pay special attention to? Well, there's, you know, Danny Garcia is a good fighter, but he should be fighting in Philly and he should be fighting fighters other than Robert Guerrero. Mm -hmm. um, Julian Williams is a very good junior middleweight who's having trouble getting 
the right fights right now, despite the fact that he's with Al Heyman. Of course, so is Garcia. Jason Sosa, my fighter, just made a big hit with Nicholas Walters, whether you thought it was a good decision or not. He was in the fight, despite what Harold Letterman and Jim Lampley said. He was in the fight. Um, you know, there's a lot of good young prospects in Philly. You know, Ray Rob, but until they start, you don't know, because they're not fighting good opposition. I mean, everybody thought Sosa was going to get his ass kicked in the Walters fight. I mean, that he wasn't going to even go the distance. And he was competitive. And he, he'll fight guys like that. But, and I'm, Julian Williams will too. But it's not that easy to make those kind of fights. People say, why can't you make the kind of fights you used to make at the Spectrum? Well, at times are different. Because back then, when you didn't have 57,000 titles, you had to beat guys to get a title shot. So contenders had to fight each other. Now you don't have to do that. Guys can go all the way up to the top without fighting anybody, and they can actually be successful, as I've said many times, because when they get to the top, the guy they're fighting came up the same way. So nobody knows. I, d I did a study recently, 1961. Eight divisions, the original eight, 10 contenders, 80 fighters, eight champs, 88 fighters. Six were undefeated. I, I, I measured that against the WBC ratings last month. The same eight divisions, the same eight champs. There were nine champs, though, because one of them had two champs. Even within the WBC, there were... So 89 fighters, 31 were undefeated. What's that tell you? It tells you nobody's fighting anybody. You know, and I blame the networks for that because, you know, you lose one or two fights... And, and, and they don't want you anymore. So why should I fight for you, Russell? You'll make me fight, and if I lose, I won't get on TV. I mean, people are so statistics-oriented today. It's a crime. You listen to ESPN. I, I fell over laughing the other day. The Cincinnati Bengals have not lost a home game in their last 15 that started at 1 o'clock. I mean, come on. <laughs> What kind of statistic is that? I mean, this guy, this guy is the leading switch hitter who's hit the most home runs on a Tuesday night on the road. I mean, the, the, the statistics people come up with is crazy. That's what the whole world is about. You know, before you had the internet, in the old days, you'd bring a guy in and, and even if the guy had lost two or three in a row, you could sell out because people knew he could fight. Right. Today, and we didn't know what records were because even with the ring record book, so you'd buy the ring magazines and in the back they'd have like the six inch agate type results from Mexico and we'd, be, we'd try to find and piece together records ourselves. Mm -hmm. Half the time we'd make them up. We'd make them up. But, but you didn't, people could fight. It didn't, it didn't matter as long as it was a good fight. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I saw that, well, I, it's, hard to, it's hard to gauge because it was my first fight, but Tito Marshall had lost three in a row when he came in to fight Briscoe. But people knew, remembered that when he had fought Briscoe in Philly four years earlier, he'd beaten them. So, but today it's, it's, all about, it's all about the W's. It's just... It's insane the way people go about with statistics today. It's just, I mean, pay attention to ESPN and some of their, I mean, 
He's got the highest shooting percentage from a school from the SEC <laughs> on a Wednesday night in home games. Like, <laughs> come on. Uh, they, have, they have nothing better to do than to, to dig that stuff up. I'd rather hear... I'd rather hear that he's got, you know, four brothers and 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 two of them were ex-ball players or so. I don't know. He's mm-hmm. the best left-handed free throw shooter in the in the Big Twelve for non-conference games on the road. Yep. Jesus Christ! It goes that crazy. <laughs> it, it is. It's crazy. And, you know, boxing is crazier than all of them with their interim champions and their super champions and their champions in recess. And it, it, one day we're going to have a champion for each pound on the scale. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's not, and that's why we're in trouble because no. So I asked somebody the other day, I was on a radio show the other night, and I said, and we were talking about Danny Garcia, and I said, has Danny Garcia got a title? I mean, he's from Philly. I should know this. Mm-hmm. And they said, yeah, he's got the WBO, I guess, welterweight title. Now, like when I was in high school and Joe Brown was the lightweight champ in 1961, I could name every lightweight champ in back reverse order going back to Benny Leonard in the 20s. I don't even know. I couldn't name. I mean, I don't even know who the lightweight champions are today. Mm-hmm. And I'm a, a historian and I'm in the business. I'm supposed to know this. You know, it's 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 insane. So, you go to an Eagles game. If there's sixty thousand people in the stadium, how many of them know who the? If you ask them who the heavyweight champion is, even when it was Klitschko, mm-hmm. they don't know. Right. Li- they were liable to have said, "Isn't there some Russian guy?" But when we were kids, everybody knew Sonny Liston. Everybody knew Floyd Patterson. I mean, it's, it's, it's insanity. It's just insanity. Every sport has a champion. At the NHL season, there's a world champion. Baseball, football. It's like, I've said this a million times. Suppose at the end of the football season, there were no playoffs. So you got the Broncos saying they're the champs and the Patriots, they're the champs and the Chiefs, they're the champs. That's what boxing is. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows. And then... You know, they, they blame the MMA and the... Forget the MMA and the UFC. Boxing did this to itself. Didn't need them to help it. They'd have had multiple champions with or without the MMA at the UFC. The, the problem with, the, with those two organizations is they siphoned off all the young kids, all the young fans. You know, so the boxing, the boxing fan base is aging. It's, it's aged already. So... I'm off on a rant. <laughs> Is there anything else that you would like to say to my listeners? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, listen. There's nothing like a there's nothing like a good fight. When I mean, if they could make a Lumpkin and Canelo instead of like. Boxing needs Canelo Golovkin now. It doesn't need it in 2017. I don't care what Larry Merchant says. Can't afford. If I had $500 million like Al Heyman, can you imagine the fights I could have made? What's he thinking? What's he doing? You know, you've got to make, and fighters have to be built. Casinos, I'll probably get in trouble with, because casinos have hurt boxing. Mm -hmm. Because for a couple reasons. Number one, there's a lot of casinos kids can't go into. Right. Number two, 
Before casinos, everybody fought somebody in their backyard. You can't develop a fighter. It's very tough to develop a fighter if you're not developing in his backyard. That's why I love Terrence Crawford when he fights in Omaha. Exactly, yeah. But to have a fighter from Florida fighting a fighter from Connecticut and the fights in Tacoma, Washington and some casino, it's insane. It's just insane and that's hurting that's hurting the business. And you got most many promoters won't run fights without casinos. They just won't do it. They won't go out and tack up posters. They won't go out and hustle tickets out of their car. They won't put on exhibitions in the city. They won't pound the pavement. They just want to go run to a casino and hey, it's good for their business. It may be good for their pocketbook, okay? But it's killing the sport. It's just killing, killing. It's never going to be what it was. And I know people say I'm a downer and I always complain, but there's too many apologists in the business. Oh, boxing's great. Floyd Mayweather is making more money than any other. Okay, good. Go into the cupboard. The cupboard's bare. The storeroom is bare. I mean, who's taken over? I mean, we need a Mike Tyson. And it's not Deontay Wilder, because if you remember when Mike Tyson came up, it's night and day from the way Deontay Wilder came up. Absolutely. I mean, you know, that's what we need. It's the only thing that's got a shot at, at, at revitalizing the sport. Very well said, Russell. Russell, thank you for staying okay. down with me this afternoon. That does it for this segment of The Way in You can check out Pelts Boxing Promotions online via their website, Facebook, and Twitter. The website address is peltsboxing.com. Again, that's peltsboxing.com. The Twitter handle is at peltsboxing. The links to their website, Facebook, and Twitter are also posted on my blog. If you have a history event that you would like promoted on my blog and podcast, please contact me via Twitter, Facebook, or on my blog. I will be happy to promote your event free of charge. That does it for the fourth episode of the Matt Ward History Experience. The Matt Ward History Experience is brought to you by One Stone Recording and Mastering in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Check out One Stone Recording and Mastering for all of your mixing and mastering needs. Go to onestonerecording.com slash mwhistory and receive 10% off of your first session. I want to thank my guest, J. Russell Peltz of Peltz Boxing Promotions, and you, the listeners. Russell can be reached via his website, Facebook page, and Twitter. The links to these sites are posted on my blog. Last but certainly not least, I want to thank my good friend Peter Lloyd at One Stone Recording and Mastering for providing tech support for this episode. I can be reached on the blog, The Matt Ward History Experience, at mwhistoryexperience.com, on Twitter, at RevWarBuff23, and via my new Facebook page. Until next time, I'm Matt Ward, and this is The Matt Ward History Experience. <laughs>